Please turn with you to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, read with me verse 28. Mark 12 and verse 28. And one of the scribes came came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It was, uh, it was Mark Twain who reportedly said, following. Some people are troubled by the things in the Bible they can't understand, but the things that trouble me are the things I can. Some people are troubled by things in the Bible they can't understand, but the things that trouble me are the things I can. Now there's a few different ways you could take that. I actually tried to investigate the quote to see if there was more context to see exactly what, I, what he meant. And I think what he is getting at is, is a point I do agree with, which is the greatest challenge in the, that the Bible presents us with is not understanding a bunch of hard things. The greatest challenge the Bible presents us with is doing easy-to-understand things. It's not understanding hard-to-understand things. It's doing easy-to-understand things. Now, there, there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. Um, the second half of the book of Daniel is hard to understand. The book of Revelation is hard to understand. Even Peter admits some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand, Second uh, Peter 3 and verse 16. But much more frequently when reading the Bible, what we find are not things that are hard to understand, not at all. What we find are things that are hard to do, hard to live out. And I think the passage we've begun with is a prime example when Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus insists on discipleship that involves all your heart. Now, the heart is the place where the things that truly matter to us live. It's our passion. It's our entire life's orientation. We still use the word heart in similar ways. We say things like, his heart wasn't in it. As in, at his deepest place, he just couldn't get himself, couldn't get himself uh, involved with it. We say, I love you with all my heart, with my whole being. We say, that spoke to my heart. We say, I'm heart sick about something. To love God with all our heart is a way of saying that you are actually, truthfully, deep down, down to the very bottom of your toes, you are deep down devoted to God. We're not just going through the motions. We don't secretly have other goals and other desires we'd rather be doing, other things we'd rather, rather be pursuing. We are wholeheartedly devoted to God. Jesus says that's the greatest commandment, that you do that. Is that hard to understand? I mean, just a few sentences, I think we got it. I think we understand what Jesus is after. But it is a whole life's work to inculcate that idea deep inside ourselves and actually do that. Jesus isn't after a few hours per week in our schedule. He's not after a few dollars from our bank account. He's not after a few cells in our brain. Think about me a little bit. No, He's after our whole heart. And so what I want us to do this morning is to hear what Jesus has to say about our hearts and get to the heart as he wants us to. 
I want us to ask what's wrong with our hearts. I want us to think about the partial fixes we often attempt to, uh, to fix our heart. And then the full-scale recovery of our hearts. God is attempting to work in each one of us. I want to get to the heart. So here's the first thing I want to say this morning. Sin is a heart disease. Sin is a heart disease. Before we can grasp how to give our whole hearts to Jesus, we must see how sin involves our hearts. We must see, that what, we must see what is getting in the way of this greatest commandment, of loving the Lord our God with all our hearts. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7, back a few pages. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus has something to say about this. In Mark 7, the Pharisees criticize Jesus and his disciples because they don't wash their hands before they eat. Um, this is not primarily a hygiene issue. This is a kosher issue. This is an issue of ritual purity under the law of Moses. So this is Mark 7 and verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of their elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many, many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So the reasoning here is that the hands have been defiled, and they're eating with defiled hands. And they've been defiled by contact with various unclean objects or people throughout the day. So there is a real danger of getting that defilement on your hands from somewhere out, out in the world, and then eating and ingesting that uncleanness in, into your body. They're afraid that to eat without washing hands means that defilement goes into the body, making pers- the person unclean. You have to understand their way of thinking. Their, their way of thinking is uncleanness comes from the outside. And purity is mostly a matter of taking defensive measures to keep the outside contaminants on the outside and to keep our pristine inside pristine. And so defilement comes from the outside. I'm pristine. I just got to maintain that, that pristineness. Well, Jesus has some things to say in the next few verses about their tradition when they call him to account about tradition. He says, well, let's talk about some of your traditions. He comes back around in verse 14 to this matter of washing hands and cleanness. Verse 14, he called people to him, uh, to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's not eating with unwashed hands that pollutes us before God. It's not when something from the outside comes in and defiles my pristine inside. No, it's when something from the inside comes out. Uncleanness, where uncleanness comes from, Jesus says, it's not from the outside, it comes from the inside. The defensive measures they're taking, assuming that their insides are all clean and all the contaminants are on the outside, the defensive measures they're taking are worthless because, Jesus says, you've let the Trojan horse of sin inside of you a long time ago. This is verse 20. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And here's the sort of things that come out from within. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they 
defile a person. Jesus says sin does not come from the outside. Sin always comes from the inside. Sin always proceeds from our hearts. Now, if we take this teaching seriously, and I'm afraid too often we don't, it is really revolutionary. One of the things this means is that sin is always, at the end of the day, sin is always my fault, and it is no one else's. Now, you say, Drew, okay, well, well, I mean, what about this thing about temptation? Can't temptation come at us? And I say, yes, but temptation is not sin. Those are two different things. My sin always comes from my own heart. Temptation may come from the outside. And yet, think about this. There is nothing tempting about temptation unless there is something inside of me already that wants something it shouldn't. Otherwise, there'd be no temptation in it. I mean, you could think of examples of sins that are out there that people do that hold absolutely no appeal to you. And all the temptation in the world wouldn't make you do it because there's nothing in you that would want that. And so we could think of examples. I'll just give you a personal one. There's, There's just really nothing tempting to me about drugs. And people I know struggle with that, and there is a real temptation for something... For, for some people, but there's just nothing inside of me that there's an appeal, and you could tempt me all day long, and there would be nothing in me that would, that would want that. And so sin doesn't just come from the outside, it comes from the inside, but I guarantee you there are plenty of other disorders inside my heart that were you to tempt me with some attitude, with some action, that thing would come out of me. That's what Jesus is saying. So for example, coveting is not just about what others have. We don't covet just because someone else has something that I want, because someone else has something we think they don't deserve. That's not where coveting comes from. Coveting comes from the desires of my own heart being out of control. Coveting comes from my own greedy appetite and my own sense of entitlement. That's where coveting comes from, because I have those in me. An opportunity presents itself for me to express those, and here it comes. Anger isn't just when someone makes me mad. It's not always just someone else's fault because they made me angry. It really began with my own lack of patience and my own lack of love for other people. Those were in there already. And then something happened that just brought out what was already in there. We could do this with literally any sin. We could trace it back to something inside my own heart, a disorder within me that simply finds expression. When I sin, I am the problem. Not my circumstances, not this particular temptation that was so overwhelming, not my background, not my genetics. James puts it this way, James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Sin stems from a desire I have to do something wrong. And the material world, the outside temptation, this is just the playground in which my inner motives are asserting themselves. It's just an opportunity for me to express these disorders in my heart. Jesus says we need to gain this clarity about our sin if we are ever going to fully give our hearts over to Jesus which is my sin is always my fault. Now, I'm not saying other things don't play a role. My genetics may play a role in what attractions and temptations appeal to me most. My environment will help shape my character and my responses. But in the end, I am the person who was chosen to do wrong. And the sin came out of my heart. The sin came from the inside, Jesus says. It didn't come from the outside. Now, So far, I'll admit, I'm going a little hard on us about this, and sin is always our own fault. But there's a liberating truth on the other side of this coin, if you think about it, which is this. If I don't want to sin, I don't have to. 
If sin comes from the inside and not from the outside, then no one can make me sin. Because that's not where sin comes from. It doesn't come from the outside. Not even the devil himself can make me sin against my will. If I want to do right, I can also do that. Go with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. I wonder if Jesus anticipates that there's some hesitance, there's some denial to accept this, that sin comes from within us, not from, not from without. Um, perhaps he knows we don't want to believe this, we don't want to think this, and so he hits it several times in the Gospels, that, that the things in our lives that are wrong come from inside our own hearts. It is a heart disease, sin. This is Matthew 12 and verse 34. Matthew 12 and verse, let's do verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So Jesus says the same principle applies to speech. And whether our speech is good or bad, whether it is, it is righteous or sinful. We tend to assume that, that the heart and the mouth are two entirely different systems. But you know, sometimes we say things which surprise us even. Whether it's the words we use, whether it's the tone we use, whether it's the intensity of our words. Jesus says our words are a litmus test of what's inside our hearts. Speech, whether good or bad, always emanates from the overflow of of our heart. It always begins with what's inside us and then it just sort of bubbles up in our actions and in our speech. Jesus especially wants us to, to understand this. Understand that because sin is a heart issue, very often we can sin in very awful ways without even fully expressing the sin and seeing it all the way through to the end in action. That, that sin is always a heart issue. When we can sin inside our hearts, we do sin inside our hearts long before we sin on the outside. And so John says this, 1 John 3.15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's a pretty extreme thing to say. Perhaps I never murdered, any, murdered anyone. What James is getting at though is, okay, but if I am as angry and as hate-filled as a murderer, am I really so different from one? Maybe a spiritual autopsy of my heart would show that my heart looks no different from a murderer's. And there just hasn't been a situation in which that's expressed itself in action. But we sin, we sin inside our hearts. We sin in private long before we sin in public. The same could be said about adultery. Jesus does say the same about adultery. Matthew 5.28 I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Same question, would the examination of my heart, would the autopsy of my heart, its focus, its content, its obsessions, would it look any different from the adulterer? And if not, what's really so different between you and the adulterer? And so Jesus' words challenge us to see sin as more than just poor behavior. It is about a heart. It's about a heart of rebellion, a heart focused on self-gratification, a heart intent on self-will, on doing what I want, and no one else will tell me what I can do. If we are to do the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, we need to diagnose sin correctly. Sin is a heart disease. It is an obstacle between us and that commandment. If I am sinning, in deed or in thought, then I've got the disease. It is within me. 
Sin is a heart disease. Which brings us to perhaps how it is we can pursue a cure. And I want to say number two. One of the things Jesus says is that rules treat symptoms. Rules treat symptoms of this heart disease. This is Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want to draw out what is a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And that is our relationship to God's commandments, even righteous commandments, totally uh, appropriate and holy, holy commandments. But sometimes our attitude toward these rules don't get all the way where, where God wants us to get. This is Matthew 5.21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. One of the major themes of the Sermon on the Mount is that one of the issues with mere adherence to rules and legalities is that it is easy to take them, it's easy to understand them and even implement them in a way that doesn't remotely touch our heart and doesn't affect our hearts at all. It is possible to understand and even adhere to the letter of the law without actually being changed on the inside. And we adhere to the law outwardly with the sin still in residence inside of us, with the heart still being as diseased as it ever was. You know, every child who who cleans his room by just stuffing everything under the bed, um, they understand what this is. To adhere to the rule without ever getting anywhere near heart change. And, and, and it becoming a different person. We, we can hold to the letter of the law without caring whatsoever for its intent, without caring whatsoever for the will of God. And so here Jesus addresses Jews who are angry and who are insulting and who are harsh and hateful and yet feel justified because they have not murdered. And Jesus says, well, congratulations on that. He's asking them, if the only restraint we show is to refrain from actual murder, have we really fulfilled the spirit of God's law? Have we fully and truly conformed ourselves to God's vision for us? Have we become the humans God wants us to be? And it can get even worse than that. It can get even worse than just not being the people God envisions. That's bad enough. But it gets worse when we check off that letter of the law, we pat ourselves on the back, and yet we still have that diseased heart, And then we walk around with a holier-than-thou look because of our rule adherence. Meanwhile, the the sin is still still right there. Now we're rotten-hearted and we're delusional about our rotten hearts at the exact same time. That's the sort of thing Jesus is really really getting at with his people. In the next breath, he gives another example of this very thing. We referenced it a minute ago. Matthew 5.27 You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery is a serious sin with serious consequences. And yet, Jesus says, it's possible to get as close to the line of adultery as we can without crossing over, to not physically carry out the act, and then pat ourselves on the back that we didn't cross over and call it righteousness. Meanwhile, the diseased heart is still there exactly the same. The problem with rules is not that the rules are ill-conceived. The rules, the laws against murder and adultery, he's quoting here, are directly from the law of Moses, a law which is holy, a law which is God-given. The problem was that as soon as the rule was made, they began to search for ways to keep from applying it to their hearts. 
the law woodenly adhered to can address the symptoms of murder and adultery. But Jesus says you've left the fundamental sins of your heart, anger and lust, you've left those totally unaddressed. See, Jesus treats the commands of God as his will for our hearts, not just his will for our actions. He wants people who can control their anger and their lust, not simply people who don't kill. He longs for heart correction, not just behavior modification. You know, I think this is the reason that the New Testament teaches, not primarily through codified law. The New Testament is not the Law of Moses 2.0. Law of Moses had 613 commandments in it. Now we get an additional 600 or so. Now we've got the 1,200 great commandments, and now we can be even holier because we get all, all more rules. That's not what the New Testament is. What we have in the New Testament are precepts. We have principles. We have parables. We have epistles, which address people where they are. And show them not just how they should act, but how they should think and how, how, they should, how they should be. We have in the New Testament teaching through apocalyptic scenes and revelation to, to uh, uh, um, engage our imaginations. God doesn't just want to engage our ability to check off all the boxes. He wants to engage our imaginations. He wants to engage our hearts. He wants to invite us to new ways of thinking, new ways of serving God from the heart. And so rules can treat symptoms. Number three, God seeks full recovery. God seeks full recovery. Go back with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Mark 12 and verse 28. In Mark 12 and verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked them, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. According to Jesus, the most important part of our duty to God is to love him with all the different parts of our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. By the way, get the connection between verses 29 and 30. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy. I never really understood what that verse 29 was doing there. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What he's saying is that the first truth, the first basic truth of of Judaism and in the Old Testament is that there is one God. There's one God. There's not many gods. There's only one God, which means there's only one God to love. There's only one God to direct all our efforts at. And we don't give part of our time to Baal and part of our time to Molech and part of our time to Yahweh. There's only the one God, which means there's only one God to devote ourselves to, one God to give ourselves to, one God to love. And so there's the one God in verse 29. There's all the different parts of ourselves in verse 30. And we give all those different parts of ourselves to the one God. There's no one else to give it to. When he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, what he means is that we have to care sincerely and supremely about that one God. The heart really introduces the idea of sincerity and earnestness. God created us as emotional beings. He expects us to tune those emotions to adoration for Him. But of course, that can't be forced. We can't at the point of the gun, at the point of a gun, be commanded to love. That's not the way love is. Robots cannot love anyone. So God never forces us to love Him. He can't. Instead, what God must do is to woo us to himself 
by declaring and demonstrating his love for us. In the pages of the Bible, he is always pleading with us and he is rebuking us and he's warning us and he's welcoming us and he's rejoicing in us and he's promising to us. In our lives, he works through our circumstances and people around us to call our attention to him. He is patient with us. He's persistent with us. He's optimistic about us. He puts up with so much from us. He does all of this so that he can win our hearts. He expresses his love for us. He demonstrates his love for us. He calls us to love him. All that we might come and love him. It's a difficult task. It seems nearly impossible to convince someone to love you in that way. But here's the thing. When God is successful, when our hearts are one to love God, what a victory it is. Because now all of a sudden, our beings are set aflame with love, the most powerful motivator of all. And suddenly, when we are convinced that God does love us and I should love Him with all myself, suddenly we're no longer prodded and forced to do what's right. We don't have to be prodded to do what's right. But we gladly march to the front lines of battle for our Lord. And and when we give our whole selves over to God, when we love Him with all, all our heart, you'll hear suddenly discussions shift from what we have to do to avoid God's punishment to what we can do to please God. When we are love-struck with God, we go out of our way to make Him happy. That's what we want to do. And we want to drink in His Word and His will, knowing the deep concern for us in His Word and in His will. And His Word gets awfully sweet, as sweet as honey, as the Psalms say. No longer are we focused on our own self-justifications for why we can do what we want, our own self-righteousness and how great we are. No longer are we trying to skirt around the commands of God, getting as as far away from them as as we possibly can, still being convinced that we're in in good standing with God. No, we love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. There's only the one God to love, and I'm actually busy doing that. And when we do that, I've got to tell you, there are other walls that start to fall when our hearts are fully won over to God. Lots of other things in our lives start to snap into place. And so that judgmental spirit in me that is deeply insecure and threatened by others and jealous of others, that spirit inside of me gets quenched when the most important thing about me is not what you think about me and it's not whether you're better at me than something or worse than me at something, But when my thoughts are consumed with the fact that I fully loved and am fully loved by the God of heaven, my relationships, my rivalries with other people get a lot better, get a lot, get get cured. And when I love God with all my heart, I don't just want to treat the symptoms of my anger and my lust. I see the deep breach they are in God's holy will. I see that my sins are a blight, a disease on my own heart. They are destroying me from the inside out which makes me want to give them up even at their most embryonic stages in my heart. And when I love God with all myself, I will want to forgive as I have been forgiven, which is completely and fully. And when I love God with all my heart, I will want treasure in heaven, because that's where the God I love is. God seeks a full recovery. Not just to modify a few behaviors that are a little bit antisocial, that are a little bit destructive to us, He wants to capture our whole hearts, to woo us to himself, to convince us that we are loved and we must love him. So I think I agree with Mark Twain. Some people are troubled by the things in the Bible they can't understand. 
but the things that trouble me are the things I can't. I think I, under, I think I understand and agree. I hope we're a little bit troubled by this greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Explaining what that means is not hard. There's no trouble with that. The hard part is keeping that commandment. It's hard because you can't check off a few rule-keeping boxes and consider it done. It's a commandment that asks us to give our whole hearts over to God. Within that simple, easy-to-understand commandment, there is an entire life's work involved. And so my question as we conclude this morning is, how is your heart? Where is your heart? What is it that consumes your thoughts, your desires, your choices? Is your heart as... Is your heart divided among different loyalties, different gods, or is the content of your heart all focused on the one God, the only one there is who created you and who loved you? If your heart is given to anything less than God, there's only one word Jesus has for you, and that word is repent. And come give yourself over to the one God. If there's anyone that needs to do that this morning, come forward now as we stand and sing.